You're listening to the Seabreeze Church Podcast. In this message series, we've been looking at the differences that Jesus has brought into our world. This is our contention. We'll put it on the screen behind you. Jesus is the hidden blessing behind the modern world. In other words, we have a lot to thank Jesus for that many people don't realize. Many of the blessings that we enjoy, like modern healthcare or modern science, or the rights of women, or as we talked about last Sunday, the freedom of our democracy. These things that are just kind of givens now in modern society didn't just pop up spontaneously around our world as forward-thinking, decent-minded people invented these ideas. Now, if you look at the history, they actually started, all of them, by followers of Christ who took his words seriously and applied those words to the problems that they saw in their world around them. And then these ideas started in these places in the world that were dominated by the Christian faith, and only in these places. And then they began to spread into other parts of the world from there. English economist Josiah Stamp says it very well this way. He says, Christian ideals have permeated society until non-Christians who claim to live a decent life without religion have forgotten the origin of their decency. That's what we're trying to to do in this series is to inform and maybe remind us of all that we have to thank Jesus for in our modern life. Today, we turn our attention to a tough topic, that is the outlawing of slavery. It is impossible for the modern mind to imagine a world in which slavery not only is legal, but is actually the driving force behind the economies of the world. The history of the world really is a history of slavery. We don't know for sure how long slavery has been around, but we do know that there is evidence of slavery from the very beginning of recorded history. And that's 5,000 years. So let's just say it's at least 5,000 years old. It's been outlawed in the U.S. now for 158 years. Now, when I look at this graph to scale, at the history of slavery, Two questions come to mind. Question number one is, why did it take so long for slavery to be outlawed? The second question is, well then, what is it that happened that finally occurred so that it would be outlawed? Why did it finally become outlawed? These are the two questions we're going to think our way through this morning. The first question is the why question. Why did it take so long to outlaw slavery? Now, there's a lot of history to go into behind this. And so most of what I'm going to talk about is a, it's just a quick overview. I encourage you to do your own research on this. Drill down even deeper than we have time to go into this morning. But first, you need to understand, when it comes to laws, we're talking about outlawing slavery. So when it comes to laws in general on any topic, laws require two conditions. Number one, they require enough moral outrage to become laws. And number two, they require enough political power to become laws. Those two things need to merge in order for a law to become possible. In other words, we don't outlaw everything we don't like. We pass laws about the behaviors that really bother us, that we have moral outrage about. But not everything that bothers us is outlawed. And that's because our political power is limited. Most people who have walked this planet have had absolutely no political power. That's because 
For them, they were under a ruler, like a king or a queen or some kind of tyrant. They had absolutely no say in the laws of the land. But even with us in democracy, in this democracy, we have more political power than almost anyone has had in history. But still, we only have one vote. We can't pass laws all by ourselves. So, for example, here in Huntington Beach, there's rumors that uh, the city council is going to pass some new ordinances, some new laws to um, help with the electric bike uh, overrunning of our city. So new laws are going to come around the corner. We'll see if that happens. Now, I've been bothered about this problem for a while, and I own an e-bike. And um, apparently there's more than just me that thinks this is a problem. That's part of what it takes. To be a law, there has to be moral outrage from enough people. And there has to be political power. Now, I can't think of two things on a further distance on the spectrum of moral outrage from slavery and and e-bike riding. I mean, (laughs) slavery is a great evil, and riding your bike on the wrong side of the road without a helmet too fast, well, that's just unsafe. But like every law, whether it's a law about slavery or a law about bikes, it requires these two conditions, moral outrage and political power. Now, both of these two advanced and grew on two different fronts until they collided. So moral outrage began to grow over time, and political power to do something about it began to grow also. And these are the two fronts they advanced on. The first front was the advancement of slavery. What I mean by this is as slavery got worse, the moral outrage against it grew and grew and grew. Let me show you some pictures that are symbolic of the ancient world. It's uh, four pictures, the, the pyramids in Egypt, the Parthenon in Athens, the Colosseum, and the aqueducts in Rome. What do these have in common? Well, they're recognized as great achievements of engineering and architecture. But what's common to all of these is they were all built by slaves. In Athens, around the time of Christ, it's estimated that half of the population of that great city were slaves. The average Roman citizen around the time of Christ had two or three household slaves. Most of the government workers in Rome were slaves. The gladiators were slaves. Now, if you were in a house in Rome that treated you well, or if you were a trusted slave working in government, you could live a good life by ancient standards. But if you were a gladiator slave, or if you were a slave attached to a house with a harsh owner, your life could be absolutely horrible. Most slaves in the ancient world were indentured servants. What that means is they sold years of their life for income. And because this is true because if you didn't have means in the ancient world, you couldn't just go and apply for a job. There was no job market as we think of it today. And that's because most labor went through the slave markets in the ancient world. So if you didn't have means, if you you were destitute in some way, you didn't have a means of income, it was common for you to sell your labor, your life, your years for a period of time. And in return, not only would you have money, but you now would have a place to live and food to eat. So it was kind of like an employment contract. I mean, very different. You you didn't go home. You lived there. You stayed there. But this is how the economy worked in the ancient world. Now, you may have heard the accusation that the Bible is okay with slavery. 
And that comes because there are verses in the Bible that talk about slavery and don't overtly condemn it. For example, Colossians 3.22 is one that's referenced. Here's what it says, Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything and do it, not only when their eye is on you and to win their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Now, why does it tell early Christians how to be slaves rather than condemn slavery? It's because the Bible is all about how to follow and trust God in the current context that we find ourselves in. And in the ancient world, the context was slavery. There was no other way to exist. And so if the verse, for example, had told slaves, now that they're followers of Christ, to run away from their masters, the next question these people would have, these new Christians would have, would be, and eat how? And live where? A few verses later, it addresses masters. Chapter 4, verse 1 of Colossians says, Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair, because you know that you also have a master in heaven. Now, if the verse, again, had said, Masters, you need to free your slaves. The next question would have been, and how am I going to harvest my field? Instead, the masters are told to treat those who are working for them rightly. Now, in a capitalistic post-slavery world that we live in, What's amazing is these verses still apply to us. And that's because just because slaves and slave owners are gone, evil bosses and lazy employees are not. They still exist. And therefore, these verses have application to us. Now, none of this makes slavery right. But it got a lot worse than it was in the ancient world, as bad as it was then. When you and I hear the word slave, it's not the ancient kind of slavery that comes to mind. This is what we think of. We think of plantation owners in the antebellum south, harvesting cotton, with slaves who had been kidnapped from their homes in Africa and forced on ships where one in five did not survive the journey. They died transiting the Atlantic. That's the image that comes to our mind, because that's our most recent history in that kind of slavery. This is the picture that I took at a slave fort in Cape Coast, or Cape Coast, Ghana, uh, in Africa. It was on the Gold Coast, the southern part. And I'll never forget walking through this fort. Um, This was one of the series of slave trading forts that were responsible for the transportation of slaves to the colonies. And it it was heartbreaking to see the conditions that human beings were held in and how families were separated and and how they had been kidnapped. It was a hard thing to see. But as I was uh, going through the tour of this fort, I was surprised to learn that the Europeans who built this fort used the slave trade that was already in place in that part of Africa. Turns out in Ghana, long before the Europeans came, the powerful Ashanti tribe in the south would conduct raids into the north to capture and enslave men, women, and children from the Dagomba and the Dagbani tribes in the north and use them to work for them. They would kidnap them, separate families. And so when the Europeans arrived, they took advantage of the slave market that already existed, and they obviously 
greatly increased the demand and the number of slaves because they were transporting these slaves now to all different parts of the world. Now, the kidnapping and selling of people has long been the most evil expression of slavery. But it was the transportation and sale of an estimated 12 million slaves from Africa to the colonies that eventually triggered the kind of moral outrage that finally outlawed slavery. So that's what was advancing on one front. That's the moral outrage front as slavery was advancing in its various evil forms. On the other side, there was the advancement of Christianity that was also taking place. Slavery was outlawed in England on August 28, 1833. It was outlawed here in America on December 6, 1865. Again, that's a full 1,800 years after Christ. So what took so long for the followers of Jesus to act on this important matter of injustice? Well, first of all, for the most of the time, the followers of Christ lacked power to pass any laws. For the first 300 years, if you were a follower of Jesus Christ, you were probably on the run from the powers of Rome, and passing laws, you were no way going to be able to do that. But even after the Christian faith became legal and allowed, then most Christians were under the rules of, rule of kings and queens and popes, many of whom honestly used their power to suppress the truth of God's word for their own gain. Others who didn't suppress the truth, they simply lacked the courage to risk their economies that were run on slave labor. But Jesus never did intend to change the world primarily through kings and queens and laws. That was not his goal. His aim is to get at the root of every problem that plagues our world by changing and getting at the human heart. And that is a longer but much more effective project. Now, slavery, like every evil in this world, comes out of the human heart. Christianity advances from the inside out, from the heart out, not from the outside in. Laws can't change the human heart. The human heart can change laws. And that's the direction that Jesus went. Jesus attacked slavery not by making statements against it that could be turned immediately into laws. He attacked slavery by planting a poison pill of truth that would get at the very root of slavery, which is the selfish human heart. On one occasion, his disciples were arguing over their future position in Jesus' government. They assumed Jesus was about to conquer, and they wanted to know where they stood in the future government. Now, of course, they were arguing over positions that never existed. They didn't know they were arguing over, now, who's going to be on the run after Jesus is crucified. They had no idea that was going to happen. But their argument is basically trying to you know, get advantage, get position, which is the selfish human heart. So here's what Jesus says in Matthew 20, 25 through 28. Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your, what? Slave. Just as the Son of Man, a reference to himself, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life 
as a ransom for many. Jesus says, if you want to follow me, the path to greatness is the path of service. You're not a slave of someone, but you behave as if you are. You figure out ways you can serve them like a slave would in the ancient world. You see, the root of slavery comes from the notion that my position over you gives me the right to use you for my benefit. Everywhere you look, still, people of position are running the lives of those under them. Jesus called it lording over them or exercising authority over them. Now, he's, of course, he's not talking about the appropriate authority that is required in a business or government where for the mission you do give directions and instructions. He's talking about using your position of power to use people for your own personal benefit. That's how it normally goes throughout history. And that selfish impulse... That logic has historically gone from using you to owning you. Now, we need to be very careful in our modern world not to get arrogant as we look back on history and make the mistake of thinking that just because we live in a post-slavery world, we are above all of this. I mean, honestly, I did this to my brother, my younger brother. I thought that my position as the oldest gave me the right to rule over him. And I treated him appropriately. Now, he wasn't my slave, but I treated him as, as best as I could until he w- went to wrestling and learned how to <laughs> respond. But for a long period of time, I used that heart of lording it over him to make his life somewhat miserable. And if you look even today, I mean, just this past week, can you think of a, a heated argument that you were in, or maybe this past month? You know what an argument is really about? It's about the attempt to dominate another person. That's the energy behind it. That's the anger behind it. You may have all kinds of justification, but you're taking someone that God has made free, and you're trying to make them do something or agree with you to control another for your benefit. You know, we, we talk about being a controlling person. You know, you'll hear people say, yeah, you know, I'm a bit of a controlling person, almost like it's, you know, it's just one of the many personality traits out there. Controlling other people may be a tendency, but it's not a personality trait. God sees it for what it is. It is our selfish, arrogant, slaving impulse kicking in. It's legal, but it's not right. It is the attempt to exercise authority over a person created by God who is free and in charge of themselves. And Jesus made it very clear to all of us what he thought of this. Not so with you. Those four words. If you're going to follow me, Jesus says, this, this is, I'm, going to get, I'm going to deal with this. This is not to be true of you. This impulse has got to change. How? By passing the not-so-with-you laws about that prohibits arrogant selfishness? Well, good luck in making that stick. You know, passing anti-selfish laws is like trying to remove a tree with pruning shears. 
You may lop off a few branches, but new branches of selfishness are just going to keep growing because the life of the tree is in its roots. So 158 years after slavery was outlawed in this country, the business of slavery is flourishing in different forms. Let me give you some examples. This afternoon, I'm going to watch some NFL football. You may too. And um, the viewing of football has changed over the last few years. Not the programming so much, but the advertising. What's the major advertising now? Betting. I mean, almost every other commercial now is a former NFL player or a celebrity inviting us to place a bet, to gamble on the games. Now, I don't know if you've noticed, but in fine print at the bottom of all of those ads on the screen is the legally required acknowledgement that if you become enslaved by this, here's a number to call. <laughs> so here's what's really happening. The celebrity, the former NFL player, who apparently needs even more money, <laughs> is giving you a tour of a cell, a slave cell, and telling you, you should do this. And if by chance, I mean, there's some people who can walk in there and walk out free as a bird, but there's a whole lot of people who walk in there, the door closes behind them, and they're, they're enslaved by it. And that's why it's legally required. It's the government's way of acknowledging, while they're making it legal, that this can really mess your life up. So here's a 1-800 number as if that's a key that will get you out of that prison. Now, we don't call it slaving. And it's legal. But it's the impulse of using another for my own profit. That's really what that is. So enjoy football this afternoon. <laughs> I will. But it gets even worse. You know, the greatest slave market in terms of numbers today is pornography. Two-thirds of all adults, all kinds of surveys, admit that they regularly view pornography, which not only enslaves them, but provides demand for the performers who are, for the most part, trafficked. That's the modern term for slavery, human trafficking. I don't know if you knew this, but most of the pornography that's produced is produced by women and also men who are under the power of someone that they can't get away from. It's slaves performing videos. Sex trafficking used to primarily be prostitution. It's a lot more profitable now to make a video that goes on and on and on and on and can be monetized rather than the risk of the disease and the arrest of prostitution. According to the Orange County Register, one of the top locations in our country for human trafficking is guess where? Right here. Orange County. You know, the slave centers of the Old South resided in places like New Orleans. Now, they're here. The roots of slavery keep growing new branches despite the passing of new laws against it. Why? 
It's a human heart problem. An inside out change of the heart is needed. How? Well, after saying, not so with you, Jesus says, instead, here's what you do. Whoever wants to become great among you must become your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be your slaves. When we decide to follow Jesus, he leads a procession, a train of individuals who are going in the opposite direction of our selfish human heart. That's where greatness can be found, he said. Not in controlling others, not in taking advantage of others, not in using others, but in serving them. That's greatness, Jesus says. Here's the thing about the slaving impulse of the human heart. It cannot be eliminated from the human heart. It can only be directed. It is either directed toward getting others to serve me, or it's directed towards getting me to serve others. We are heading one direction or the other in life. And this can't be done, this switch, directional switch, can't be done with willpower alone. We need the help of Jesus, the one we follow. And Jesus didn't just send us words from heaven saying, hey, start serving, stop lording. He came to serve in the biggest way of all by, as he said, dying for us. He gave his life up for us. This set the follower of Jesus Christ, set them on a collision course with slavery that led to it being outlawed. So you've got the moral outrage growing as slavery gets worse, and you get the followers of Jesus Christ growing in their understanding and the change over time. And those two collide, and slavery becomes outlawed. How? That's our second question. How did slavery become outlawed? Well, it happened in times and places where there were Christians with enough political power to enact these laws. That's the story, at least, of outlawing slavery in our nation. Like the larger story of our nation, this story begins in England. In the early 1800s, John Wesley, who was a pastor, began to preach, and large crowds began to gather. And it led to what historians eventually refer to as the Great Awakening in England. Thousands and thousands and tens upon thousands of people in England turned to Christ. Now, Wesley was deeply concerned about the advance of slavery in the colonies. The last letter he ever sent before he died was to his friend and fellow Christian, William Wilberforce, who's a picture of him. He implored Wilberforce to use his position in Parliament to fight for abolition. Wilberforce then devoted his entire political career in Parliament to eradicating slavery. It became his sole objective. And he is universally acknowledged by historians as the greatest campaigner against modern slavery. In fact, his efforts were so persistent and so intense that for the first time in history, the word campaign was used to describe a political effort and not a military one. So now we talk about a political campaign. This is where it started, with William Wilberforce on a political campaign to outlaw slavery in England. Through his efforts, slavery was abolished in 1833 in England. What that did is that freed 800,000 slaves in the colonies. What's interesting is that year, 
England paid 20 million pounds to free all the slaves in its colonies. This was an expensive decision. At that time, this was half of the entire national budget. Can you imagine any country giving half of its entire budget to any cause? That's the strength of this campaign and what it led to. In the winter of that same year, emboldened by the success of the abolitionists in England, a group of Christians gathered in Philadelphia here in America to form what they called the American Anti-Slavery Society. Now, you can't read this. Don't try to read this. You can look it up. But this this is a, a picture of their founding document. And this group, more than any other, is credited with the campaign to abolish slavery here in America. The charter document includes seven Christian scriptures right out of the Bible. 75% of the founders of this organization were pastors, Christian pastors. So this is a picture of that declaration document that they signed and pledged their lives to. But let me just read an excerpt from it. Here's what they said. We hereby affix our signatures to it, pledge ourselves under the guidance by the help of Almighty God, we will do all that is in us, that in us lies, consistently with this declaration of our principles to overthrow the most execrable system of slavery. They had long sentences back then. <laughs> to deliver our land from its deadliest curse, to wipe out the foulest stain which rests upon our nation. I mean, the courage, these men, a lot of them died doing this. And to secure to the colored population of the United States all the rights and privileges which belong to them as men and as Americans, whether we live to witness the triumph or perish as martyrs, which many of them did, in this great benevolent and holy cause. Two years after these Christians started this society in Philadelphia, two years, there were 400 chapters across the nation that had sprung up. And then I think within about a year and a half after that, there were 1,000 chapters. Now, sadly, I can't be honest about history without making you aware of the fact that there were vocal defenders of slavery among Christians in the South. There were some. But they were vastly outnumbered by the Christians who were ardent abolitionists. Now, I can't finish this message on slavery without mentioning that the end of slavery was not in our country and in others the end of discrimination. And here again, the church has had an imperfect record. But it is no accident that the man who led the campaign against discrimination in our nation was a man of profound faith in Jesus Christ, Dr. Martin Luther King. I found an open letter on the King Center website written by his widow, Coretta Scott King. This is what she says about her late husband. Life's most persistent and nagging question, he said, is what are you doing for others? He would quote Mark 9:35, the scripture in which Jesus of Nazareth tells James and John, whosoever will be great among you shall be your servant, and whosoever among you will be the first shall be the servant of all. Huh. There are those words again. Slavery in all of its evil forms is the way of the world and always has been. 
And Christianity is sadly not without guilt on this. But for all of our missteps, Christianity is the only force on earth that has produced the political will that has outlawed slavery for good. No other religion. You do your research, but no other religion has ever had this effect on slavery. But for many in Africa, in China, in the Middle East, and for all the slaves in the sex trade industry around the world, the job is not done. The slaving impulse remains. So what can you do? Well, again, this is what Jesus says. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be your slave. The slaving impulse, as I said, cannot be eliminated from the human heart. It can only be properly directed, redirected. It is either directed towards getting others to serve me or getting me to serve others. We often think about how to advance in life. We almost never think about how to advance in serving. But that's what Jesus is saying, is if you want to advance, this is where you advance. So, for all of us, the question needs to continue to be, how can we advance in this? What's our next step? I mean, look around. There are so many ways to serve. I mean, Ethan mentioned one here, you know, the upward. There's an opportunity. Whenever I... You know, I see all of you serving on Saturday. I'm just amazed that this many people would give up a perfectly decent Saturday to serve people that, in many cases, they don't know. That's what followers of Jesus Christ do. Let's pray. Jesus, we, um, we thank you that you did not come to be served. If there was anyone walking this earth who had the right to be served, it was you, God in flesh. There will be a time when every knee will bow before you, but you did not force anyone to bow before you when you walked here. Instead, over and over again, you would serve. You would wash feet when the servant wasn't available to do it. So, Jesus, we follow you. Teach us and show us where our dominating, controlling, slaving hearts are trying to control and where we can serve. Help us see where there's a part that we can play in human trafficking, in the sex trade, to free those who are imprisoned by that. We thank you for the blessing that has followed you and that we get to live in a world that is much freer than it was then. We pray this now in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Seabreeze Church podcast. For more information about our church, you can visit our website, seabreezechurch.com. Thanks again for listening in and we hope you'll join us next week for the Seabreeze Church podcast.